Welcome to the 402nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I speak with school nursing practitioner and leader Robin Kogan, author of The Relentless School Nurse Blog. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word about COVID Calls and send suggestions for guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. So today, January 19th, 2022, some vaccination numbers. The Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center reports that the nation of Ukraine has a 33% vaccination rate vaccination rate. Russia has a 48% vaccination rate. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. This is the obituary of Cynthia, Cindy, and Casey, and it appeared in Lakeland Now, Florida. September 20th, 2021. Cynthia, Cindy, and Casey, age 57, passed away on Wednesday, September 15th, 2021, at the Lakeland Regional Hospital after a four-week battle against COVID. Her journey began in Louisville, Kentucky on May 8th, 1963. She was the daughter of Dorothy and Reginald Chick Casey Sr., she attended high school in Louisville, Kentucky, but she completed her senior year and graduated from Lakeland Senior High School in the class of 1982. After high school, she attended Travis Technical College to become a nurse. She completed their program and earned her licensed practical nursing certification. Cindy was employed through the PCSB, the Polk County, Florida School District, where she worked as a school nurse and a paraeducator. She enjoyed animals, travel, photography, kayaking, and had an obsession with the Rolling Stones. Cindy was known to be an incredibly adventurous and fearless and had a heart for connecting with others. She will always be remembered for her beautiful smile and joyful spirit. She kept those around her laughing and so loved being the instigator of practical jokes. Cindy was preceded in death by both of her parents, Dorothy and Reginald Casey Sr., her stepmother, Jean Casey, and her stepbrother, Keith Schuler. She was closest to her dad, paternal grandmother, Lottie Casey, to her dad and paternal grandmother, Lottie Casey, who helped raise Cindy as a toddler after the death of her mom. Jean Casey, her stepmother, loved Cindy as one of her own daughters. Add just a little bit more to this obituary. And this is a testimonial which was posted by Bev Taft on the Heath Funeral Chapel and Crematory website for Cindy. And this was posted October 6, 2021. 
Cindy, my little sister, the hardest thing I have had to do was write your obituary. Made a few mistakes, but under the stress and circumstances, that task was done alone with love and respect. I was really praying hard that you would be one of the ones to beat this beast called COVID. Life for many will not be the same without you in it. The love of nursing we shared, but could we tell good nursing stories? I remembered when we made up our own game, worst made-up diagnosis ever. We could come up with some pretty good and bad ones. I remember when I went to live in the nursing dorm, you would be on the front porch waiting for me on Fridays and ask me to tell you what I did and learned that week. You did not care much for the surgeries or birthing baby stories. I've been through all of the should-haves and could-haves this last two weeks, but it would not have changed a thing. You will always be in my heart, thoughts, and prayers. Love you, Bev. Obituary and testimonials for Cynthia, Cindy, and Casey, who died of COVID September 15th, 2021. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and one I've really been looking forward to. Let me introduce my guest, Robin Kogan. Robin Kogan is a nationally certified school nurse, currently in her 21st year as a New Jersey school nurse in the Camden City School District. Robin represents the New Jersey State School Nurses Association as the director from New Jersey for the National Association of School Nurses Board of Directors. Robin writes a weekly blog called The Relentless School Nurse, She's the honored recipient of multiple awards for her work in school nursing and population health. Robin Kogan, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you so much. I am honored to be here and really interested in the work that you're doing and having this conversation. Let me start the way I usually do, Robin, just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. Yeah, so I'm calling from, I live in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, right outside of Philadelphia. I am a school nurse in the Camden City School District, as you mentioned, and COVID, uh, spe specifically the Omicron variant, has been really ravaging our state. We were one of the first hit with Omicron right after Thanksgiving, and it's been a very... Uh, fast-moving upward trend ever since then. There's some indication that things may be easing. Haven't necessarily seen it in school yet. Um, so New York, New Jersey, it's it kind of mimicked what happened at the beginning of COVID where we were hit very hard in the, in the Northeast and then things spread across the country. It, it seems like that is occurring again. I'm located now, and so I taught at Drexel University for 20 years. So I know exactly the area where you are in Camden and that whole region. And um, But I'm in South Korea now. And and so following some of these details are a little bit hard, like the rollout of a, of a national masking availability. I mean, even just keeping track of like how masks and tests are made available to people these days is very hard. What does it look like there? Can you get a, a test on, on demand, for example? So uh, rapid home tests are a little bit hard to find. It really depends what part of the country you're in. The Northeast, it's been hard to find. They've been selling out very quickly. The government is sending out four rapid tests per household. And that actually, the portal opened yesterday. It uh, wasn't supposed to open just yet, but it opened yesterday with a huge response. 
I think over 900,000 people, families have already ordered. Wow. Um, <clears throat> there's been a few glitches. Uh, for example, if you're living in an apartment building and you all have the same address, there, there were some, you know, technology glitches. But for the most part, um, it's, it's being widely publicized. And I know for me as a school nurse, I have spread it to as many people and families and students and staff as I possibly can. Um, you know, the idea is, is that we want to be able to have our kids back in school, but we do have to know who's safe to be there. So we do need a much more robust testing program. And this will hopefully help that. I mean, this is just the beginning. Um, and then there was some controversy whether or not, you know, is four tests enough? What if their families, you know, what's the equity here? Are their families, multiple families live in the same household? So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's again, we are building the plane as we're flying it. That has been the, you know, the visual of COVID all along. Absolutely. I, I wonder if you would share a memory of this time, uh, you know, something that's really sticks in your mind. I know there must be very many. Almost everyone has such a density of memories at this time. But something that really stands in for COVID era for you? So many memories of, well, first I want to say that when you think about the longevity of this, you have to understand that for our kids, this is the third school year impacted by COVID because it began in the spring of 2020, the 19, 2019, 2020 school year, all through 2020, 2021. And here we are well into the 21, 22 school year. So if you had a, a student in fourth grade this year, their last typical school year without any COVID in their life would have been kindergarten. And when you look at that length of time and you see, think about the impact of what all of this has meant for not just that student, but their class, their families, their community, there's, you know, the, the ripple effect of all of this, I think is what I often think about. I mean, I, I do have a really powerful COVID story. Um, that I'm happy to share. Um, so I do a lot of work in gun violence prevention. And I'm very active on Twitter in that space of gun violence prevention. And um, I got a message from a mom who knew that I was active. I was a school nurse. Uh, we never met in person, but we were Twitter friends. And she sent me a message in the middle of the night. And the message said, Robin, I only have one child left. What should I do about school? The message was from a mom who had two children at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Her daughter died, Donna Grace. She was six. Her son survived. And now, you know, her son who had been eight, it was now 16 turning 17. And she had to decide, this was last year, if she was going to send him back to school when his school reopened. And what after COVID, you know, reared its ugly head and the things that we were trying to deal with, you know, I always, the foundation of what I do as a school nurse and what other school nurses do is we focus on safety, right? Safety is our focus. And as soon as COVID hit, it struck me the invisible nature of this virus and how unsafe we were all feeling at school. And 
it just is magnified in a situation like this family who had already had the worst day happen to them in their lives, right? And here they were having to make another decision about their son in, in a very unsafe circumstance. So when I think about COVID, I think about my friend Nelba, I think about her family and this story. And, and I was very honored that she reached out to someone that she did not know, but yet she knew that I was a school nurse and she knew that I um, worked in the gun violence prevention space and she trusted me to reach out and say, can you help me? And to me, that's the essence of school nursing. And this is not a family that I have direct contact with, but I, um, I will forever remember that trust that she had to reach out to me. That Well, thank you for sharing that. And that perspective is one that maybe a lot of people haven't thought of, um, this sort of continuity almost that you're describing about concerns that schools are not safe places, which goes back um, before or, or that schools should be safer places, maybe is a better way to put it. That goes back before COVID. Um, and that's been a motivator for you in your work as well, right? That has been a... a a tremendous motivator in my work, not only because I work in an urban, I like to say urban rich, because it's also rich with culture and rich with diversity. But with that comes, uh, you know, um, being under-resourced and having, you know, adverse community environments breed um, difficult circumstances. And there is community violence is part of um, many communities. So I as a school nurse, um, always think about safety. And, and I, I think about it from a personal perspective as well, because in my own family, we have had um, uh, gun violence episodes in my family. And so um, it, it's especially part of, you know, what, where I put my focus on, because I know the impact. I've lived the impact. And so um, COVID, COVID amplified the lack of safety for me. And I'll give you an example. When COVID first started and we had to talk about all the mitigation strategies, one of the strategies was to open doors and windows. But in school, we are told to lock doors and windows because of community violence, community gun violence, keeping the intruders out. You know, you hear about students having active shooter drills, right? This is all part of what we have happening in America, going back to Columbine and, and, and moving forward. And so I, you know, I just, it, I just kept thinking to myself, no, you know, yes, open windows and doors, but wait a minute, we're supposed to close windows and doors. This is not sitting well. And so it really, it really honed in on the fact that safety and the lack of safety was an underlying circumstance that people really weren't talking about. And, you know, COVID to me in the early days felt like, I felt like school was a Petri dish. In fact, I, I made a statement to the New York Times, got me a little trouble at school, but I said it anyway. And I said, I feel like we're playing Russian roulette with our kids and our staff because we are in a very unsafe circumstance. I mean, things have changed. Prior to the Omicron variant, things are very tenuous right now. Prior to Omicron, 
I think we got more of a handle on what was happening. It didn't seem to be impacting children as much. Um, a lot of things have changed, though, and really since Thanksgiving. Um, but we got through the fall of the school year. You know, still safety is at the center. Safety needs to be at the center of every decision we make. And I think that's part of the frustration that I'm feeling as a school nurse right now when the CDC guidelines change so dramatically from 10 days to five days out of nowhere in the middle of a really surging variant that seems to be impacting children. In fact, more than a million children have been uh, diagnosed with COVID. And so and, and, and a lot, a, a large percentage of that has been within the recent, you know, several months. Right. And so we're, you know, do we center safety? What does that say about how we care for our children? And listen, I know the importance of our kids being back in school. It is, it has created many um, barriers for learning, for connecting, for kids to have any sense of normalcy. But at the same time, you know, what is the cost benefit? How much risk are we willing to take with our kids? And we're sitting in that right now with Omicron. You know, we're sitting in making these decisions. Uh, I know in my own school district, some schools are closed. Some schools are half days. I, I feel like we're in a big Jenga game at the moment. And, and it's all crashing down. That's what it feels like. Let me just remind everyone that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today with school nurse and safety advocate Robin Kogan. And Robin, um, I want to come back and talk about every aspect of what you just raised. And um, But I want to go back a little bit before that and ask about your career and why you chose to get into nursing. What were some of the interesting things happening in nursing? And then let's follow that thread um, into schools because a school nurse, if you're like me, um, you have a strong memory of the nurse in your school as being a sort of a presence that was kind of always around. There was like some education aspects that were on. There was always some kid that got hurt on the playground and went to visit the nurse. Um, it was a, she was a present figure in our lives, but no, nobody ever knew like where she came from. Like it wasn't like, we, we, it was never explained where the school nurse came from. She was just there, and that office was there, and it was known to be a like a like a safe space on on the campus. So, how did you get into this? Yes. So it's so funny. I actually uh, got into it in a in a not in a very direct way at all. Um, I actually studied art therapy prior to going to nursing school, and um, I I had a choice after I finished my program to go on for my MSW or go further into art therapy. It was a very different time. It was the 80s and uh, ancillary therapies were really not being, they were really new, they were really not being accepted, nor were they being um, uh, built. You weren't, it wasn't like a billable. Uh, and so there was a lot of financial issues around um, DRGs, I don't know if you remember them, but the, the whole, our whole uh, health system changed around that time. And um, I was doing my um, final uh, practicum in a general hospital. Actually, you're from Philly, right? So you know, it was, you know, the area. I was at Einstein Southern in Southern, in South Philly. And I was on a 
uh, in a general hospital, but I was on a psychiatric unit and I was doing my art therapy practicum. And a group of nursing students came through to do their practicum. But one of their peers was actually an inpatient on our unit. And that probably never would have been allowed to happen today because of HIPAA and privacy and all of that. But um, I, I watched and listened and I realized that there was so much I didn't understand. Um, and so without much thought, honestly, I went to nursing school. <laughs> I, I kind of took this very twisty, turny road and um, and I really did enjoy it. I really did enjoy it. I was glad that I went. I ended up being a psychiatric nurse and substance use disorder nurse. And I, I did many different things. I did occupational health. And hmm. um, I was kind of, you know, I had an interesting career. I never really quite found a home in nursing. So I was trying some different things. I had my family and my, um, I worked for Conrail, which was a railroad had a great job with them, but they were taken over by another railroad. And I uh, was given, I, the, my job ended because I wasn't, I couldn't move with the company to Florida because my family was very right. well grounded here. And so my kids wanted to go to overnight camp and I went with them as the camp nurse and everyone there was a school nurse. And I made a decision. I mean, my, I had no mentor. I've talked about this before to some other people that I had no mentor. I had no path. I, and I thought, Oh, school, that sounds good. I had no clue the extent of what it really meant to be a school nurse. And so, um, I hadn't been back to school in years. And in New Jersey, you have to get certified just like a teacher. So I immediately wow. began a certification program. Um, and the very first class, the very first night, the instructor said, uh, that Camden city was hiring and, um, and I applied and I got accepted. I've been there 21 years. That's, uh, that's a great story. And that's a great story for young people to hear too, you know, when they're in college and, and it seems like everything has to be right in the lane. And you realize that people who end up doing remarkable things often have tried many different, many different things. But it sounds like you were always sort of centered in care. Centered in care, really centered care. in mental health, you know, mm -hmm. and, and centered in, and I always loved children. Um, and I, I also felt that, you know, in nursing, I mean, you can do many, many different things with a nursing degree. So I, I think it's important in any career that you're in to, to not, uh, pigeonhole yourself, to really allow, you know, to, to sometimes go with the flow and see what happens and see what it means. So I, I, it was a, a, a you know, a happy, I wouldn't say an accident, but a happy outcome in the end. Well, let's talk about the job. I mean, what's what's required of school nurses? And I imagine it probably varies like everything in education. It probably varies widely from town to town and state to state and nation to nation. But can you give us a landscape a little bit? I mean, sure. what are the requirements of a nurse in school? Sure. Well, the, there is no protected title of a school nurse anywhere across this country. So every state, it looks very different. Um, you can have, first of all, I have to say 25% of schools in America have no school nurse at all. 35% only have a part-time school nurse. Now that was before the pandemic. That's during the pandemic. So 60% of schools have no, either no school nurse or only a part-time school nurse. 
So only 40% of schools have a full-time school nurse. And you have to understand the ratios are astronomical. So one school nurse could have 2,000 children, young people, if she's in a high school, let's say. What we really need is a school nurse, at least in every building. Certainly COVID has taught us that. And for school nurses to work as a team, the scope of our practice is very wide. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I started my blog. I really felt that it was up to us as school nurses to say, to tell our story so that people understood what we did. There's always been some mystery, some confusion, and a lot of misunderstanding about the role of the school nurse. But it is steeped in evidence. It has a long history of providing care. We truly are the um, like a hidden healthcare system in our society that we need to not be hidden. And part of that is because we, as nurses, haven't always wanted to be out in public talking about what we do. And when nurses say to me, "Oh, I don't like to boast. I don't like to." You know, I don't want to, to, to be so public. And I say, you're not boasting, you're educating. We have to educate the public about the importance of having a school nurse, at least one in every building. But like I said before, what we need is a team. And that was, has made, been made very clear during COVID because what we're doing now, if you have a school nurse in your building, is we are really the de facto health department during COVID. We are doing all the contact tracing, the testing, the com, you know, the, the difficult conversations with parents. We're the disruptors calling them to say, Hey, listen, your kid is a close contact with somebody who's positive in their classroom. And, and you're, you're now going to have to quarantine for 14 days. I mean, imagine those calls over and over and over again. So we've, you know, we, we are that public health person in the school and, in a non-COVID world, um, we would spend up to 35% of our time on mental health issues. That has escalated. And, and we also care for the staff. You know, the, the staff also, certainly with COVID, everyone is a collective trauma that we've all experienced, right? So much has changed in our practice. We call it pandemic school nursing. We all wanted to end, you know, six months ago. Um, I'm personally very concerned about the school nursing workforce, much like the nursing workforce and all healthcare workers, you know, dealing with this for two long years and no really clear end in sight and lots of missteps and misunderstandings and miscommunications and, um, and feeling that, you know, if school nurses had, um, more uh, agency and say in their districts, I think some decisions would be different. Um, and so it, it has been a very frustrating time. I'm really struck by your characterization of school nurses as a hidden healthcare system. In America, when we think about you know, the role of schools also for providing nutrition for so many children across America, and um, I had not thought about the role of school nurses in providing care also for faculty and staff. Visitors? You know, part of the school and visitors as well, right? So, so I mean, what an enormous role. I mean, in, in the time that you've been doing this work, has it changed at all, either for the better or for the worse? I mean, what's been the trajectory of, let's say, um, funding? Have those numbers remained quite stagnant? Did 
did um, you know the passage of the ACA help at all? I mean, we've seen anything. Um, the, you know, I'm here? glad you said something about the ACA. Um, the ACA in my district really helped my kids get medical care. That was tremendous. I went from having a, a, a much smaller number of children covered to like 95 percent. Although that's changed again, um, but. No, funding, you know, and that's the other piece, how funding is is provided. I, unfortunately, school nursing is seen as a cost center and not an investment. We really are investments in children's health. If children are not healthy, they are not going to learn. And our role is to keep them in school. Our role is to not remove them from class. You know, we want healthy children to be in class. That's you know, they are, that is our focus, our absolute focus. But having said that, in the midst of a pandemic, we also have to look at the population health level of what this is and say, wait a minute, you know, let's look at every mitigation strategy. Are we implementing them properly? Do we have the proper protection to keep everyone safe? You know, do these guidelines make sense now that we know that Omicron, for example, is airborne? <laughs> Does anything make sense anymore? <laughs> Why are we fighting to get uh, like N95s or KN95 masks at school? Why? Why aren't these things top of mind? We should not have to fight to protect ourselves, you know? And so it, it has been, um, it has really been a struggle and and what one thing I've done with my blog through my blog is raise these issues and say, this is what's happening. These are what school nurses are telling me. This is what we are seeing at the ground level. You know, how many times do we have to ask for help? Is anyone listening? You know, I've written, I've written over 700 blog posts and a lot of them have been written in the last two years. And a lot of those have been kind of the same messaging of this is what we need. We need help. This is what we're seeing in school. And it is astounding to me that yet we continue um, to not have the answers. Lots of questions, but where's the action behind it? You know, the, the ARPA funds, the American Rescue Plan uh, funds, I really suggest that they do a forensic audit of where those funds have gone. Because I can tell you they have not gone to, to help uh, school health services. Let me just remind everyone you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Robin Kogan today. I wanted to pick up on the um, the mental health aspect that you mentioned. And uh, I'll share with you a few years ago, I was teaching a class, um, one of the most fun experiences I've ever had. I taught a class on the year 1968. This was in 2018. Last year. And, um, and we had a moment in the class in which I asked the students, you know, we talked about what it would have been like to be a teenager uh, or a, co a college student in that year and what the sort of shared experience would have been. And of course, it had a lot to do with Vietnam and, and civil rights. And I asked the students what their shared experiences have been. 
And the number one thing that they landed on was that they had all been through a lockdown drill. Oh, yeah. Uh, not a drill. They'd all been through a lot. I should say the drills, but also a lockdown. A live action, yeah. It, and, and either because of a of an intruder in the school or a threat. And, and a lot of people don't realize how many just threats are called in every day across America that also shut down schools. And so they had all, and that was the thing that the, every single student in the class who spoke, and it was most of them, shared that. Now, I'm from the 20th century, and school violence wasn't unknown in those days, but it was not, it was an order of magnitude different from what we see today. And um, we did not have that shared experience. We had different kinds of drills, but we didn't have that. So I, I wanted to bring that to you just to think a little bit more about you know the role of the school nurse in mental health, but also around, you know, and we were touching on this earlier, but around school shootings and, and violence. Yeah. So, yeah, generation lockdown, they're actually called. And, you know, between... Between Columbine, I don't want to get this number wrong, but between Columbine and the present day, just at school, not community violence, but just at school, over 350,000 children have experienced gun violence at school, have been a witness to some kind of violence in their buildings, that many children, because that many episodes of school gun violence have happened. And, you know, for me, this is a very personal and professional discussion because on a personal level, um, unimaginably there, my family, uh, we are, we have, uh, we are survivors and have victims of two mass shootings, uh, that have happened to my family personally. Um, my father, when he was 12 years old, lived in Camden, New Jersey, and my grandfather, uh, they lived uh, at the pharmacy where my grandfather was the pharmacist. And their neighbor had just come back from World War II. Um, he had access to a weapon. And one day, one early day in September in 1949, he murdered 13 people in their neighborhood, the Camden neighborhood where I actually work. Mm. Um, my dad was 12. He was an orphan. He lost his mother, his father, and his great and his grandmother. Uh, ten other neighbors were killed that day, and thirteen people were injured. And unbelievably, um, seventy years later, my niece was a Parkland student. And so, when my niece she survived, when my niece survived Parkland, I remember telling my sister her mom, you know, that as a school nurse, as a nurse, as a human, as a family member of victims and survivors of now two mass shootings in our family, that I would do everything in my power to address gun violence through the public health sector, because that's, I think, where we're going to find answers. Um, and so I have spent the last four, almost four years since Parkland because it will be four years uh, on February 14th, working in that area, uh, looking at gun violence as a public health issue, hoping to solve it like we solved, you know, kids wearing seatbelts and all of the other public health, you know, issues that can be solved with, with evidence, with data, with research, with using that public health model. And gun violence has not been addressed that way. 
you know, it's, and it hasn't been funded. Uh, it's become so politicized, just like COVID has become so politicized. I mean, there's many parallels between, I think, people who don't, you know, don't want to be told what to do with their guns and also don't want to be told to get a vaccine. It, there's this very interesting parallel that I see. Um, and so, and that's where my work has been. My, my blog kind of took a left turn after Parkland and I have become much more using my activist voice. Um, and, and again, it goes back to safety. It goes back to school safety and community safety. Um, because if we don't feel safe and if we, if we are not safe, well, how can our children flourish, right? They're not. They're going to continue to perpetuate people who have exposure to violence, have a propensity to either be a victim or a perpetrator. So what can we do as a society to limit their exposure to violence, to not witness this God-awful violence? I'm sorry that your family has, has experienced those tragedies, and I really, truly appreciate you sharing that, and I'm glad people can hear that. And particularly the way that you weave that into the sort of broader concern for, for safety and, and care at school is really an important connection to make. I, I wanted to ask you about, you know, after Parkland, people have, because COVID now is everyone has this sort of COVID brain, um, and, and long COVID sufferers also have, you know, it's, it's part of our culture now. Um, it's taken up our mental space, but, um, I wanted to ask you about the role of the students because after Parkland and then the the climate marches that were led by students, we saw something, uh, you know, sort of generational here, I think, about the role of students standing up and saying, we're not going to take that. We're not going to take our schools being unsafe. We're not going to take our, our planet melting down. Um, and now I think we're seeing this with the school. It's been a little bit delayed with COVID for lots of complicated reasons, but I, I wonder how you how you think about the role of, of the students in all of this, the young people in all of this. I, I love the voice of the students. I think we need to respect their voice. I think we need to support uh, what they are telling us. I think they need, you know, they have shamed us. We have, we have done a disservice to our young people. I mean, what, you know, how you judge, a nation is judged, right, on how they treat their children. And we have done a very poor job in protecting our children. And um, I, I think one thing about Parkland, there were so many issues raised, but one in particular that really speaks to me is the voice of children of color who have lived with maybe daily gun violence in their communities that didn't have the privilege that uh, we know that Parkland has and, and the focus and the intensity of the media. But Parkland, those kids did a really great job of reaching out to other communities that didn't have the same level of media attention. And they extended their hand. They brought them in. There were kids from Chicago that have worked with March for Our Lives. They, they have really been a model for how we need to be inclusive and look at equity across this country when it comes to whose voices are being heard, you know, who's, who's, Who's community, you know, the voice of the community is really going to give us the answers that we need. And I think the whole message about who is an expert should be turned on its head because the experts are the community members. The problem is we haven't given them, we, people who come into communities 
that are maybe under-resourced that we don't live in, but we think that we can give them all the answers, right? Um, we, it, it, it's wrong. It's, it's the voice of the community that are the experts. I mean, I, I look at what's happened with um, just, for example, COVID vaccine acceptance in certain communities. You know, there's that subset of people that are making it political. I want to set them aside. But then there's the subset of people who have valid reasons to distrust a system that has um, hurt them, harmed them, that they do, that they have a history of not trusting how they've been treated. And so for that subset of people, um, you know, we need to find out what their concerns are. How can we meet, how can we meet their understanding of the need for the vaccine? Can we change what can we provide to them that maybe will have them um, rethink their decision? And so, you know, the, not blaming and shaming and, and making people feel badly about their choice, but listening to them. What on? It's like literally a one-on-one -on -one conversation at this point. I was just at a COVID clinic uh, just yesterday, actually, feels like a long time ago, and a school-located vaccine clinic. And you know, I, I talked to people who were getting their first shot or their second shot, even though the vaccine's been available now a very long time right? Um, in the in the life of COVID. And some were getting shots because they had a family member die. Some uh, came to a decision because they want to be there for their kids. They're afraid. Um, and and, and it, that's what it takes. It takes these one on one discussions, but that's respecting the community, you know, mm -hmm. and. And I think the other piece of COVID that if there's any slivers of shine, shining light, there's not that many, but is that um, it, it's really told us that our country is filled with inequities. And, and when you look at things like something simple, what you would think is so simple, but just internet access, why isn't the internet a utility like gas and electric? You know, why should it be so expensive, so out of reach? We all need access to the internet. Our kids need access to the internet. Remote learning looked, you know, could have been a lot, much improved had we had a robust system of, of uh, you know, connectivity. So a lot of lessons to learn for, for this historian over here. Well, let me ask you about the and all good and 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 incredibly valuable. And one part of it I wanted to follow up on is about the that public health. And you mentioned about so the role of the school nurse in the, in public health. And so on some of these issues, um, you know, in in terms of respecting the community, how how do you see the role of the school nurse in terms of educating the students in the school about public health? But then I, I wonder about how that then has an impact across the community. Kids go home and talk to their older siblings and their nieces and their grandparents, particularly if they're in intergenerational, multi-generational families. Um, you know, a young person who says something emphatically, uh, they can be really play a really important role in a family. And and I think about anti-smoking campaigns in this regard, and I know that they very clearly those were focused on us when we were young people and we chastised our grandparents to quit smoking. And in, in some cases it worked. It worked. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different ways 
to for to influence who who has the most influence over those people who are still making their decisions and what are their decisions you know um the rollout for the vaccines has not been as um uh, as robust as we would have hoped uh things you know there there's been a lot of complication with messaging and what appears to be frequently changing guidelines you know, we've just lived through a very a politically unstable time, and the, the repercussions of that, I think, are still being, being felt. Um, and so there's, you know, this discussion about the vaccine um, not making it political, but really wanting to find out why people are hesitant is something that has to be a shared purpose across a community. So what are the pastors in the community saying? What are the barbers and the hairdressers in the community saying? Who has the most influence over people in the community? Who are people listening to? You know, who are the credible messengers in your community? And so children, yes, can we can we get enthusiasm for our children and, and bring that enthusiasm home? What we're finding, we could, but what we're finding right now is that we we feel we seem to be in a such a chaotic state that it's hard to normalize anything to even think outside of the the chaos of the day does that make sense sure. you know we're we're kind of living still in um it's not that school's chaotic school isn't chaotic it's we're trying to have like a typical schedule and a what would be a typical school day, but there's nothing typical about it. And that's the problem. There's no time and space to, to do those things because we're dealing with kids who are coming to school sick or staff who are coming to school sick. Um, it, it is, we have been spending an inordinate amount of our time contact tracing, figuring out who was impacted, who was exposed. They have to go home. How many, you know, these things take hours and hours and hours to figure out. And that's why I said before, what we need is a team. You know, what we're missing are the parts of school nursing that we love, those conversations, those interactions. It's really hard to have them right now because we're still in crisis mode. And that's probably been the most frustrating part. I wanted to ask you about a couple of kind of specific moments in the pandemic and just, uh, you know, hear from you about these. I mean, you know, early on, um, for most of people in the United States, let's say in March of 2020, um, everything happened very quickly. School closure was, uh, you know, we're going to close for two weeks and take stock. I don't imagine, although you can correct me, and please do, but I don't imagine school nurses were consulted much about those decisions. Um, am I Am I right about that? You are 10,000% right about that. We, it, you know, COVID seems to had it's, it came so fast. That's what it felt like. I mean, we knew we were seeing some sick kids like in December and January, and it was weird. And they had some strange virus and nobody could quite figure out what it was. It wasn't until March that we started really putting the pieces together. But for me, for my district, we were told we we did not close until March 18th, which I'll never, it was a Wednesday. And the Friday before that Wednesday, uh, we were told to pack for two weeks, exactly what you said, that we were going to be back in school by March 30th. Um, that Friday, I, I'm a preschool nurse now, so I go from building to building to building. So that Friday, 
before we closed on Wednesday, I went to my school and I pulled up to my school. This is a big school. There was not a soul there. The building was dark. The building was locked. There was not even a light on. There was no note. There was nothing. Wow. And I felt like, I, you know, the like the disaster movies. I was going to say, it's like an apocalyptic film. Right. That's what it felt like. I got chills. I get chills even thinking about it. I got chills from head to toe. I called uh, my contact there and I said, what's going on? Because I'm, a, I'm a, a consulting nurse, right? So I'm not there every day. I have different buildings that I go to. And right. they felt terrible that they didn't think of calling me, but they shut down because they already had a COVID positive case in their building. Uh, okay. And they shut the whole building down and they were not coming back. And I... It, it struck me that our lives, our lives were about to change dramatically and I wasn't sure what it was going to look like. I mean, I was a school nurse during H1N1, but it was nothing like this mm. at all. It was not to this degree of fear and um, unknown, and it certainly didn't last endless years. Uh, so that, that I went home that day. I went to my other school and I looked around and I, I went, I went home that day. And I, I remember saying to my husband, this is not good. I don't know what's happening exactly, but this is not good. And I immediately started, you know, diving into some, there was very little information available at the beginning. They were even saying, don't wear a mask. It's not necessary. I mean, there were so right. many, so That's many right. miscommunications. Um, but I think the other really striking day was our last day of school before, and we knew we were shutting down. Mm. And I walked up and down the halls and, and, you know, it was March and so spring and all the bulletin boards and all the kids artwork. And it was almost like we were just leaving everything frozen because we mm. thought we were coming back in two weeks. We didn't come back for a year. So when I returned to school in March of 2021, I looked at my desk blotter, nothing had been touched. The buildings hadn't been occupied. And there was my desk blotter from March of 2020. And That's I, amazing. it was amazing. That, and, and well, and that was the other thing I wanted to, to ask you about was sort of the reopening um, discourse would be a kind way to put it. It was a really rough summer. Um, teachers were put in, I think, a impossible position school board meetings. Um, we had a couple of COVID calls leading up to um, September of 2020. I talked particularly with Rebecca Martinson, who's been on COVID calls a couple of times now, and Angela Minor, who's a local educator. Um, great discussions with them. Rebecca's actually a nurse uh, educator, educating high school students who are going into nursing. And, um, and you know, she spoke out in that summer and, and other uh, nurses, I think, spoke out of that time around this, you know, these questions like if we're going to go back, what does it need to look like? And, you know, issues around ventilation, around masks, around distance. That was those were, you know, the source of what seemed like endless, you know, meetings, planning and a lot of strife as well. And then. And it took a different form across the entire country. So I wanted to ask you about that from, from the perspective of school nurses. So you didn't go back until March of 21. Others were back in September of 20. What were you hearing out there, uh, you know, in terms of who was doing it right? And, and 
who was well, everyone was, was very much, everyone was very much afraid that much. I can tell you. Um, and you're right. There were people were, every district was different, even within a state count, you know, different districts within the same state, neighboring districts within the same state were doing different things. We're still doing different things. You see, every time school closes, the reopening is, it gets a little more complicated. Um, right now we reopened again after Christmas break, right? But we just reopened and we, we were remote for the first two weeks because of the increase in Omicron. We're still not back fully. There's several schools closed. There's a school that's been closed today because of cases. All the high schools are part, are half days. You know, I feel, I think I said this before. I feel like I'm in a big Jenga puzzle and it's just all going to come crashing down. Um, so at the very beginning of COVID, the fear factor was really high because, of course, we only had masks, hand washing, um, social, physical distancing, you know, cough etiquette. We, we had nothing. We had no, you know, we, we didn't really know uh, any other tools to use except typical public health strategies that somewhat work, you know, that Swiss cheese model of protection and hoping the virus doesn't get through. I mean, a year or two later, we do have vaccine and we do now have some antivirals, but are they acceptable? Are people, you know, people may have gotten the vaccine, but now they're not getting the booster. I mean, there's just, there's this push and pull for every decision that's made. Um, but, but then, at the beginning, I was very, very concerned, you know, focusing on safety. And I, I did, I had an interview with the New York Times and I said that I felt like we were playing Russian roulette with our kids and our staff that was not received well, um, by my school district. But I did feel that way. And I ended up talking. I was on CNN a few times. I was on a show with, uh, Dr. Um, Alan from Harvard, he was on a different, he had a different belief system. You know, he's the, the building, the build, the health building um, professor. And, you know, I think the bottom line is we know kids need to be in school. We, we need, school is such a center of our community, of, of how our country functions. But again, we need our kids to be well. We don't know the impact of long COVID on children. Clearly, Omicron uh, variants impacting children. And, you know, at what point? I, I, I don't want schools to close. I don't. But I want us to be safe. So get us N95 masks. Be, let's be very transparent about what we need and what's not happening in school. You know, last year when we did go back, we were hybrid. So we were really there half a day. We did not have all the kids in the same classroom. You know, those things that we know work are no longer really being done in school anymore. They're not really physically distancing. It's virtually impossible in school. You can put all the signs you want down on a floor. People are not, kids want to be together, right? But we have buildings and classes where there's a lot of kids in the same class. It's almost back to the same census it was prior to COVID. That's not helpful. You know, the biggest transmission is when kids have their masks off and they're not and they're eating together. That's where a lot of that we've seen in school transmission. We've seen a lot of in school transmission with sports and, inter and extracurricular activities. But mostly we've seen community transmission because outside of what we try to keep 
in school to keep kids safe is not happening in the public, right? Restaurants are open full. They're not really. And sports, look at look at any given Sunday. Do you see a single person wearing a mask at, at football games? Very few. Right. right. You know, so where is the priority? We should have opened schools and let other things, you know, not be so open until we got through this variant. I mean, that's a powerful insight. I'm just share with you, you know, little anecdote here from South Korea. I have two kids in school here and um, track and trace is like a is like an art form here. And so, you know, we get a text message um, from my son's someone at the school in the evening. There's been a confirmed case. Um, all the students need to be tested at the free local testing center by 10 a.m. tomorrow. And then by 4 p.m. the next afternoon, we have the result. Um, he is fine. Uh, most of the students are fine. And then he's back in school the next day. So that's a, and that's a system which is both cultural and financial. So they have the resources to do that, that testing. It's, it's not done only at the school. It's the community. It's the city in this case. Um, and then culturally, People didn't decide it was the right moment to stage a protest in front of the school because they were asked to get a test. They want their kids in school, so the commitment is there. Now, South Korea um, is, a, is a democracy. It's a thriving democracy. Not everybody gets along. Not everybody bows down to the state. And people have characterized countries that have done things differently than the United States as somehow authoritarian or, or places that couldn't be good models. But I, I give you this example because I wanted to ask you, you know, how much of this do you think comes back to questions of resources? So if we'd had the resources in American schools in 2020, I, I, 2021, you know, could we have done that, this kind of a track and trace or other methods so that kids can be back? Well, the sad part is not only do I think we could have had the resources, we could have had the technology, we could have had, you know, the, the, um, the wherewithal. The problem is we don't have the collective will to do that because we have a divided country that has politicized COVID and they don't want to be told what to do and they don't want to be told what to do with their children. But remember, kids coming into school, there are 14 child um, illnesses that our, the kids get vaccinated for, 14 of them. I don't know why COVID is so standing as such an outlier. Is it because it's an mRNA vaccine? Is it because, you know, of all of the, the uh, conspiracy theories around it? You know, we've always accepted vaccines for our kids and for ourselves. I mean, I got the polio vaccine when I was a kid on the sugar cube. You know, we, we, we have lost our way in this country. I mean, the difference where you are is that you had a national response. And as a nation, they have followed because you are caring about your community. We don't have that right now. And I, you know, I will get political right now. Donald Trump opened that door of instability and, and it has permeated our country. It has permeated this response. And from the beginning, when he was not truthful about the vex, about the, 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 the seriousness of COVID and, and that the CDC really was used as a political pawn, it's really hard now for them to regain the public trust. It has been eroded. And so I feel like th this is a, a nuclear fallout of a terrible time. 
learning so much today in my conversation on COVID calls with Robin Kogan. Robin, can you spare me a few more minutes? I, I wonder if we can just talk. Okay. I, I've been very greedy with my guest's time this week, but these conversations have been so, in, I'm learning such an enormous amount. I wanted to ask you about the, I'm glad you brought up the incivility aspect, and I'm glad you you know sort of tied that to what's going on with vaccines. It's going to take a time for us to figure that out. Maybe it's the newness of it, um, but you're right to point out, you know, childhood vaccination is just a standard part of what it's like to yeah, live in a in a modern you know, society that cares about health. But I want to ask about this because this is really concerning to me that in some states, politicians seem to be now they want to drive a truck through this and actually go further and say all childhood vaccination should right. be up to up to parents. I think in Florida, that's actually, Florida's not the only state where state legislatures, state legislators have introduced these kinds of bills. I mean, I five years ago, I would have said, that's just performance politics. Americans love to do that kind of stuff and it'll be forgotten. I'm not so sure anymore. No, it's a new day and it's really scary. And, and, you know, they open that, you open one door, that's, this is a Pandora's box that is now really wide open. And so, you know, when, when a state can legislate that, can legislate to ban public health mitigation strategies like masks, we are in deep trouble. Banning masks, telling, telling school districts that if you allow your children and your staff to wear masks, which we know is one of the only protective factors we have, especially for kids who can't yet get vaccinated, that you will lose federal funding, we should all be terrified by that kind of legislation, that, that use of power. It is abuse of power. It is disrespectful to all that we know of, our, of what it means to be an American. We are supposed to care about our communities. We are supposed to care about our neighbors. You know, I, I said recently, please care about other people's children as much as you care about your own children. You know, when we have had just a, an awful time of, of um, trying to implement mitigation strategies where people are going to board meetings and protesting them. You know, turning doctors and nurses' cars over in the in the parking lot because they didn't like the the rules that they were trying to implement. I mean, this has been a really scary time, and so, you know, for me, I, I always I do. I I mean, I I just from from past generational history, I worry about violence, and violence has escalated around these issues. And you know, the saddest thing is that our kids are watching. They're watching how the adults are interacting. You know, you talked about the Parkland kids. They watched how the adults did nothing from Sandy, from Columbine to Sandy Hook to Parkland. Nothing changed in terms of gun violence legislation, right? We're, we're doing the same thing. Our kids are watching our response. They're watching our lack of response. There was a great story just yesterday about an 18-year-old whose parents refused to get him vaccinated he left his little town somewhere in Pennsylvania and went into Philly and got a vaccine. You know, this is where we are. I mean, this has split up families. This has split up friends. Um, listen, there are nurses in my own field that are uh, in the camp of anti-vax, which shocks me and upsets me. Um, but 
but here we are. And, you know, for the best that we can do right now is to try to get the messaging clear and be, you know, the public health messaging from the beginning of COVID is haunting us right now. People are using that mixed messaging to point fingers and, and create confusion intentionally because that's, that's what disinformation is. There's, you know, there's a big difference between misinformation and disinformation. When people spread things that they believe are true, but maybe they're not true, they don't go to the source, they're not taking a primary source, that's misinformation. But when people do it intentionally, knowing that it feeds into a, um, uh, you know, into a conspiracy theory, knowing that it will cause chaos and confusion and, and, uh, conflict, that's disinformation. And that's what we're seeing. So you've made, uh, bringing correct information into the, into the ecosystem, big part of what you spend your time doing. And of course, I want to remind people that they can check out your work on the Relentless School Nurse blog. And everybody should, should read this. <clears throat> and as I mentioned, we talked before, um, I mean, it's full of information and it's full of points of action for advocacy. And there's also some heat to it. As people can see from this conversation, there's a lot of passion in it. And I think it's a very popular blog and should be. I wanted to ask you, because you testified also before the New Jersey State Senate Education Committee this month. Um, is that a comfortable role for you as well? Um, I get scared when I think about a really that. really interesting like question. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad you, I get scared every time I publicly speak. So let me just say that. And every time I publicly speak, my husband laughs at me, but I play uh, a song over and over again to get me prepared. It's Sarah Bareilles' Brave. And I play it over and over like at least 10 times. Um, I always get scared. I always feel um, I feel like I need to challenge the status quo. And I feel like they are if they are asking me to present the what is happening in school nursing in New Jersey, I'm going to tell them the truth. And, and that's what I used my time for this time. I, this time, I think, um, I was very forthcoming about what was happening in the state and, and my disappointment at the Department of Education, who have basically been very silent, um, and not a partnering with, with school nurses and the school nurse, uh, the state school nurse association you know we it, it is a lost opportunity for any organization uh, that are making decisions including school administrators to not include a school nurse in these conversations because when non-public health people are tasked with making decisions that impact children's health they need to have a school nurse at the table and it's it is unconscionable that they don't because they don't know what they don't know so just as we're closing up here, um, advice that you would have for the current administration, things you want to see that maybe could actually get done that could make the lives of school nurses and by extension children better as we finish up this school year? I would love to sit down and have a conversation with Dr. Rochelle Walensky, with Joe Biden, with Dr. Jill Biden, who I know is such an advocate for education. Um, I think we can all be on the same team. I think school nurses are such an underutilized 
you know, resource in this country. There's 96,000 of us. Find us, use us. We could be the best partners that this administration ever had. So I just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls live at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Please join me tomorrow as we round out a really great week on COVID calls. I'll be talking with Dr. Sikulil Moyo, who is the Botswanan virologist who led the team that actually identified the Omicron variant. So please do join me for that discussion. And I want to thank Robin Kogan um, for this uh, hour and wide ranging conversation and also for the work you're doing. Um, you seem to have plenty of energy for it, but I hope you can keep that energy up when you really need you. And thanks for your time today, Robin. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.